Welcome to Tzarech Ian, a podcast from Yeshivat Oraita. Listen in as two Rebbeim reflect with one another on current events and unpack central Hashkafic questions that affect how they view the world. A forum for divergent perspectives informed by both study and lived experience, these conversations will illuminate a handful of the Shivim Panim Torah and scratch the surface of ideas which may in fact require further exploration. everybody and welcome back to another episode of the Tsarich Elan podcast. My name is David Silverstein and I'm joined today by our first guest ever from outside the formal Oraita Shiva Oraita orbit and that is my friend Rabbi Dr. Tzvi Sinetsky. Rabbi Sinetsky, thank you so much for joining us today on the Tsarich Elan podcast. Thank you Rabbi Silverstein for having me. It's, it's an honor and uh, a true joy to be on with you. So, Rav Tzvi, uh, we've known each other for a while, and I've always had the pleasure, before, at least when you lived in New Jersey, we used to be able to spend time together schmoozing briefly here and there when I would go visit Kushner. But um, I know that you have a lot of sort of, uh, you wear many hats in terms of your own uh, personal, academic, and professional sort of life. So maybe uh, before we get to the topic of today's podcast, maybe you could just introduce yourself for a few minutes to the larger uh, listening audience and talk a little bit about sort of what do you do? I know that you're an educator, you also have a doctorate, you have smicha, you also run the uh, Lamb Heritage Foundation, you also are an editor at Lairhouse, so certainly you have your plate full. Just give a little bit of an introduction to sort of who are who, who is uh, Tzvisinetsky and sort of uh, what is where has where has your intellectual sort of journey led you? Sure, of course, um, with pleasure. I am, uh, I've been in, uh, I've been in for, uh, for 15 plus years. I remember, have uh, wonderful memories going way back, starting out my journey uh, while I was in Smicha teaching part-time upstairs at uh, MTA. Uh, so it's uh, learning downstairs in uh, the oldest Madrasha Yeshiv University, teaching upstairs. Uh, sometime in Paul, really, um, my emphasis has really been in terms of chinoch in the classroom uh, and beyond. Uh, and uh, that's really where I've been anchored, uh, including in, in my current school, which is, uh, which is called Mainline Classical Academy here in suburban Philadelphia. It's a, it's a fascinating classical school with a, a Jewish track. And uh, one of my roles is I oversee uh, everything having to do with, uh, with learning, uh, learning, teaching Torah and uh, Hebrew, et cetera, uh, here in the school. So that's sort of one hat that I wear. In addition to that, uh, as you say, I have a, a number of different roles and interests. Um, my doctorate was specifically focused on the question of really the rabbinic conception of manhood, uh, as they say, masculinity nowadays, and really asking the question, uh, which is, uh, I think, becoming increasingly relevant and, and very much relevant to our questions uh, in today's conversation, which are really, was there or is there a, a, an ideal conception of what it means to be a man? There have been many who think that in today's day and age, there's a sense of searching in general, but in particular, what does it mean for me to be a man in general? What is what is the Jewish view on that? Is there uh, is there a, a single or a cluster of different insights that Chazal has to offer uh, to us as uh, for growing young men, for men in general, as to what the good life looks like and what it means to be a Noir Hashem in general, but what that means as a, as a man in particular. Uh, so that's uh, one area of current interest in terms of some of those other uh, some of those other hats that I wear. So I do I oversee the website uh, features that some some 800 sermons of Rabbi Lamb. 
um, Shalom, and uh, those are just gems. So if anyone hasn't seen them, uh, just Google Rabbi Lamb, uh, Yeshiva University website or whatever, and you'll find it there in the Lamb Heritage uh, Archives. Uh, over the last four and a half years, I've also had the great joy of being involved as an editor at Lairhouse, which I see as not only an important incubator for Jewish ideas uh, that uh, are not, not political, not partisan, but really meant simply lishma about Torah, about our community, and kind of holding up a mirror to ourselves and asking how we can grow. But it's also an opportunity for young people who are learning the craft, who are starting to emerge as leaders in the community, want to find their voices to really uh, craft and cultivate a new generation of, uh, of authors. We've had some uh, some Oraita authors as well, including uh, including my host uh, for this podcast, but also some uh, some former, relatively recent only them of yours and of uh, your yeshiva and it's been a joy to be able to work together with those authors uh, in cultivating that new generation. Excellent. Um, I, I will say just parenthetically that I have a, had the, pr the privilege of writing a few articles for the Lairhouse and I can tell you that Ritzvi, you always have an incredible uh, editorial eye and you always uh, add a lot both to the content and to the structure and the substance of the piece. So thank you very much both personally, institutionally and communally for all the amazing work you do. Um, across the Jewish world. Uh, the topic that I want to talk about today is a topic that obviously has been sort of on the minds of Orthodox Jews already for hundreds, if not thousands of years, but it sort of came to a head, at least for me, uh, last week or a few weeks ago through sort of a funny medium. Uh, there was an article that was written in the Jewish press by Ben Shapiro, uh, the famous Ben Shapiro, the political commentator, certainly not a rabbinic scholar, but somebody who has enormous voice. I think his podcast is like uh, number eight on iTunes. And he wrote an article in uh, the Jewish press, which in and of itself was sort of an interesting medium. And the article was intensely provocative, and it, it was titled Modern Orthodoxy's Moral Failure. So even the title alone is something which sort of raises an interesting question, right? Do people believe that modern orthodoxy is somehow failing? And he goes on to write a very intense and in-your-face article trying to talk about uh, contemporary orthodoxy's response to the issue of homosexuality. Now, I think this is one of those examples where the medium in many ways compromised the message that Ben Shapiro's rhetoric is very intense and very in your face. And oftentimes just reading the article, it can be turned off by uh, the style and the style that he uses oftentimes can sort of deflect from some of the substantive points he may be making in the article. So you, uh, Ripsi, wrote a very important and critical uh, response to Ben Shapiro, and you analyzed sort of different elements of his article, both his historical definition of modern orthodoxy, you challenged his conception of secularism, and I think you did an amazing job just poking holes in some of the various points of Ben Shapiro's argument, article and doing it in a very respectful and engaging way and sort of not using the rhetoric that uh, Ben Shapiro used in his original piece. That being said, I think there is, at least for me, one passage in the article, in Ben Shapiro's original article, uh, which you didn't discuss in your response as far as, far as I could tell, but I think it's a, it's a passage that I think does deserve some reflection. And actually, I think what happened here in this article is there was so much intensity in terms of the rhetoric that by, by the time you got to this piece, you sort of people were turned off in terms of uh, looking past the way he was talking in terms of engaging the substance. I'll read for you one quote, and I think this is a quite controversial quote, but I think it's a controversial quote that does require some reflection on behalf of the Orthodox community. And here Shapiro says, this is a quote, the Torah's worldview is most valuable precisely 
where there is controversy. He goes on to describe uh, contemporary orthodoxy's inability to articulate reasons or rationales why the Torah prohibits uh, homosexual activity. And he says, speaking specifically about homosexuality, but I think you can extrapolate more broadly and think about other instances where there are sort of disconnects intuitively or ethically between biblical prohibitions and our moral sense. He says, what happens oftentimes is that our leaders routinely, quote, wave away such injunctions as God's will without explaining in powerful terms just why God would want to say want such a thing. This amounts to the chokification of the Torah, the reduction of halacha to the realm of, of inexplicable, the unjustifiable will of God. So just sort of hearing that quote, specifically two parts of the quote. Number one, the idea that the Torah's worldview is most valuably precisely precisely where there is controversy. Like, wh what do you think about that? Do you think that actually the novelty of the Torah is exactly in those moments where we feel dissonance? That's a great question. It is, it is an important quote, and I think you're absolutely right to highlight. One of the things I tried to underscore, uh, but as you say, there, there's only so much space. I'd already gone, exceeded uh, my original word counts uh, quite considerably. So uh, there was only so much bandwidth uh, with which to be able to uh, to engage that. I'm, I'm really glad that you that you raised this, but I think one one of the things that uh, that discussed is kind of once we move past that rhetoric, uh, where is their agreement with Shapiro? Where where is he really onto something? In this particular case, it really answer on, on really on two levels. The first, uh, in terms of the the assertion that it's precisely where the Torah is most controversial, in the sense that it's most at odds with contemporary morality. And kind of this is of course classic, uh, an important example. The, the, the assertion that that is the most important place where the Torah has to weigh in terms of its morality, that I would not agree with. And the reason I, would, I wouldn't agree with is I think that if I understand him correctly, Shapiro's general perspective, his perspective here, is that the kind of purely rational or intellectual argument for the morality of the Torah or whatever it might be is a kind of the it, it, the essence of what it is that the Torah is taught. Ma'am, it's so it's the reasoning or the morality, the, the ideas behind them. It's so what they're what they're meant to do. In other words, if the purpose of uh, of Tamiyam and sort of understanding of the morality of the Torah is in order to purely to clarify intellectually what is correct and what is incorrect, what is right and what is wrong, then I would agree that it's precisely in the cases of the greatest dissonance where the Torah's voice on morality is most important. But here I, I think that that's not quite right. I think that the Torah recognizes, and I think we all recognize, that we are rational beings, but we're also emotional people. We have sentiments, we have attachments, we have connections. The ideas that the purpose of the mitzvah, the idea of thinking about the underlying morality is not only to answer the difficult questions. It's not only to say, how can I posit dogmatically, intellectually, where are there dissonances, or where is the Torah truth, and where is our society misleading us? It's meant to give us a positive an overall vision for the good life. And if that's the case, I can't say, I can't see that, for example, I don't know the, the, the value in the mitzvah of Shabbat and its underlying significance. And the difference between undergoing and experiencing Shabbat is a series of 39 prohibitions of Malacham and a number of discrete activities, making Kiddush and eating a Sudat Shabbat, and davening in Shul and saying Abdullah and all these things, that that's the sum total versus an inspiring overall religious experience where we get to connect with HaKadosh Baruch Hu through the experience of Menucha and kind of the depth of that experience. And because I think it's not just about the intellect, I think that there's 
uh, I think there's great significance and equal significance, uh, if not more so, when it comes to infusing our everyday lives with meaning and with uh, spirituality. Uh, and that's why I think that while there is certainly importance to understand that through his moral perspective, because we're not just intellectual people and because our goal is not just to clarify correct beliefs, but rather to inspire, to engage a new generation of people who are connected to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, connected to Torah, connected to Mitzvahs, connected to Yahadas. So I think that it goes beyond just intellectual postulates. Yeah, if I could just sort of push back for a second. I mean, I think you're right that uh, the formulation here, the Torah's worldview is the most valuable, certainly sort of hyperbolic, right? I think you're right that you can sort of balance uh, different dimensions of the Torah's worldview and say each element in and of itself is inherently valuable. But I think sort of one um, piece that Ben Shapiro is getting up, is sort of getting at here, which is this question of chokification. In fact, when I first read the article, you know, I first heard the term chokification from Rabbi Clapper. So I was like really excited that, oh my God, Ben Shapiro is like, you know, reading Rabbi Clapper and, you know, modern Torah leadership has made it onto uh, you know, the Daily Wire. But then I actually was fascinating because I looked in the footnote and um, he referenced his brother-in-law, actually, my friend, uh, Rabbi David Pardo, who was the connector between uh, Rabbi Clapper and Ben Shapiro. So it wasn't as if I wasn't as excited that, you know, oh, Ben Shapiro is not, is not reading Rabbi Clapper directly, but still, at least through a cliche, he's getting access to uh, Rabbi Clapper's ideas. And this is something that I've thought about for a while, because even if I were to grant you for argument's sake, that the Torah's vision is sort of uh, unique and meaningful and engaging outside those areas where we feel the dissonance. I do wonder sometimes whether or not when it comes to the Orthodox community, particularly the modern Orthodox communities, uh, willingness to handle tough questions, we do oftentimes default back to this model of chokification. And, you know, I struggle with this as a teacher, you know, for example, I think one of the most contentious issues, at least that my students deal with, is the question of gender and women's issues. And I often do find that, you know, when you start to look and start to sort of ask around, you know, how are different rabbis articulating, you know, gender roles and specifically how that applies itself when it comes to halakha. Again, you do find a lot of this language of chokification, an attempt to sort of say, listen, this is the halakha, this is the way it is, but we don't understand exactly why. And I struggle with sometimes with whether or not we're really doing the halakha justice by appealing to this chokification model, sort of whenever we have this dissonance sort of built into our religious lives. So just out of curiosity in terms of how you interact with this sort of category of chokification, meaning even if you want to concede, right? Even if I want to concede to you that, you know, Shapiro's line at the beginning is overly hyperbolic, right? Do you think it is the case that the Orthodox community, when it comes to the most contentious issues of the day, is oftentimes appealing back to this holkification hulk model, which preserves the integrity of the rule in the book, but in no way sort of addresses the core question as to what is the Torah's vision? Yeah, so here I would absolutely agree with uh, Shapiro, and I would agree with you. So I guess whether Klirisho and Klishani, would have you, and and Rabbi Clapper himself, while well, he he coined this term, he also uh, in uh, I believe the, the same article that uh, it's an article that you shared with me uh, in answer of our conversation. So in that uh, in that piece, he. he he does talk about, and I'm in full agreement with him as well, that while there can be a value to focusing on, on the inscrutable of God as kind of the, uh, as a holding pattern, as he calls it, uh, that, uh, that that's certainly not, uh, it's not the ideal. I, I would agree with that 100%. I think we uh, explain to our students uh, generally that on the most difficult questions of the day, we really don't get it. In other words, fundamentally, our morality is the same as secular morality, but alas, what can we do? Baruch Hu is mitzvah, and we're going to 
develop as well. I think that it's a legitimate answer. It's an important answer. Uh, it's part of uh, something that, uh, that Rosal Vichik emphasized and many others, uh, certainly that a notion of sacrifice, there's no question, but I, I agree with you that at a certain point, uh, we need to say more. And I do think, and it's actually one of the points that I made in response to Shapiro, is that actually is one of the two points that I specifically said that he, uh, that I think he's correct to point to, is that this has been an area of weakness, that we do need to do better in terms of explaining. Yes, we always follow the will of Akadosh Baruch Hu, whether we understand it or not, right? But nonetheless, there is a, there is a, a deep, inspiring, uplifting, uh, and coherent vision that the Torah sets forth, especially on around women's issues, gender issues, uh, right, gender identity um, questions. Again, as I was saying earlier, alluding to earlier, what it means to be men, what it means to be a woman, and uh, all the complexities that come with that. And of course, the case of homosexuality. So I'm with you on that. Well, let me sort of sort of push this one little bit further. I mean, how much do you think um, Rabbi Salvatic sort of uh, overarching presence here is motivating the conversation. Let me sort of flesh this out a little bit. You know, certainly one of the central things, I'm, I, I'm by no means a, a scholar of Rav Salvechik, but I have read obviously quite a lot of Rav Salvechik's writings. And sort of one of the, I think, central themes is his emphasis on sacrifice and his emphasis of the Akeda and the centrality of sort of sacrifice in Jewish life. And sometimes I feel like, you know, what's happened over time is that Rav Soloveitchik articulates this powerful idea, as he mentioned before, Choklo Yavor, that there are certain red lines that we have to sacrifice. And even when, you know, Halach is challenging, right, we can't give in to sort of our own uh, intuitions. We have to sort of sacrifice ourselves in service of a, of a greater good. There's those famous stories, you know, somebody who's a Kohen and goes to the, uh, goes to the cemetery and, I'm sorry, somebody's about Shuva and he goes to the cemetery and he realizes he's a Kohen. Right? So you have this image of like the halachic hero. Somebody's able to realize that even though he's about to get married, he realizes that you know he's a Kohen and he can't marry a woman uh, who's a, a divorcee. So what ends up happening is this idea of uh, the akedization of Judaism, right? this idea that like sacrifice becomes such a great value, I think oftentimes what happens is, is that we sort of feel comfortable more, comfortable more with the Hulkification model, Dafka, because we have elevated the role of sacrifice. In other words, when you elevate the role of sacrifice to be so religiously virtuous, then you say to yourself, wait a second, if I don't understand, I'm actually able to tap into this ethic right, of sacrifice and of humility. And even though the Rav talked about majesty and humility, I wonder sometimes if in contemporary discourse, there's just not that much majesty and there's a lot of humility. So I feel like what's going on here is sort of two things simultaneously. We're talking the language of chokification, but that's not happening in the abstract. We're students, so to speak, communally of Rabbi Salvage, who talk the language of sacrifice. And all of a sudden, the sacrifice combined together with chokification leads to seeing right? Chokification as a religiously valuable enterprise because it allows us to access this ethic of sacrifice. And I'm curious, sort of from your perspective, right? Do you think that sort of this notion of sacrifice and Rabbi Soloveitchik being obviously the intellectual leader of orthodoxy, how much do you think that voice is sort of playing out in the contemporary conversation around contentious issues? It's such a, an insightful and uh, an important question. I'd answer on two levels. Number one is just to speak very briefly in terms of whether or not that really is uh, what the rub was driving at, um, you know, irrespective of whether or not we've kind of ad adopted and adapted that contemporary discourse. And then the question really of is, is that really what's undergirding um, our hesitancy and reticence to offer the uh, compelling explanation for the Torah's voice on morally contentious issues on the rubs. Own view. So here I would say that I think you're absolutely right to emphasize the, the thing 
system of sacrifice. But I think that what was motivating the Rav, and I think if you if we read the Rav more broadly, as you say, majesty and humility, but I think even on his specific treatments of Tame HaMitzvot and, and uh, where he emphasized the role of sacrifice, I really do think he was uh, he was particularly interested not only in that sense of yira, of reverence as kind of the dominant uh, element of the religious experience. But I think it's more than that. I think he was particularly concerned with uh, what he viewed as threats to uh, fundamental changes uh, in halachic practice and halachic structure. Many of the uh, the specific issues that he was encountering, take it, whether it be uh, issues related to mechitza in the 1950s, which was one of the controversies, of course, at that time, whether it may have been questions of aguna, one of the most uh, uh, powerful and uh, kind of cried the core, agreed uh, the cores of the rub with regard to the question of uh, of uh, of the permanence and eternity of the Torah and our inability to understand uh, its depths was specifically in response to a, a well-known proposal to uh, to declare. Uh, marriages uh, null and void, and thereby to, uh, according to the, from the Rav's perspective, to really undermine uh, so much of Kabbalah's Kabbalah's on Shemayim, the sense of uh, accepting the yoke of heaven. So I think, you know, and I think if you look, take a look at the Rav, while he was skeptical about the idea of, that we can find the, the definitive explanation for the mitzvot, he was careful to discriminate, to distinguish between the uh, the intrinsic reason for the mitzvah versus kind of an additional time kind of a separate, uh, you know, something that adds a little flavor to the mitzvah, et cetera. He developed this in a number of contexts. I, I don't think that he meant to say that there's no value or that there isn't even significant value in understanding both the, the true Rasul Hashem in terms of the deeper significance of the mitzvah and even that there can be value in sharing with our students and, and really with ourselves and our own families, uh, those those kind of that, that broader taste. So I just wanna, I think it's the Rav's view as usual, uh, needs to be taken at full complexity, not that you're not, but I just wanted to kind of flesh that out. Kind of what does it mean that this humility uh, uh, that's uh, accompanied by majesty and that the ropes here, I think, is a little bit more expansive than sometimes it's uh, it's made out to be as this kind of like uh, Akeda theology. Um, so that's number one. Number two, I think, but more important for our conversation is what's motivating us nowadays. And here, Rav David, I would suggest that while the Rav certainly has had a massive impact and cast a tremendous shadow over our community, I think that really what's what's happened is not so much that we're attached to his particular perspective or any particular perspective. I think it's actually that we lack a particular understanding or a perspective on what the good life is and what a Kodesh wants from us and what Torah and Mitzvot are all about. It seems to me that uh, what's really happening is that we live in a time and that unorthodoxy struggled for a very long time. It, we emerged in many ways as a sociological movement. We were moved, right? In other words, emerged certainly in America as a movement that was focused on, okay, how do we remain true to our orthodoxy, but still able to integrate fully into American life? Right, so that can become, you know, uh, people who are talented and well-respected, whether it's in the world of sports, in the world of politics. And I'm not talking about now about divisive politics. I'm talking about a Joe Lieberman type figure. Right? Like these were the, the kind of the, the high points, the high watermarks of what it meant to be an American Jew. And I think what that means is that we, we didn't really come from historically a place that was focused on asking ourselves or really developing a coherent notion of, what it means to, to follow the Ratzon Hashem, or what does the Kodesh Baruch Hu want from us? I think the Tamiya Mitzvot are most powerful when they're offered not only discreetly, 
but is part of a larger, coherent, compelling, uh, inspiring worldview, especially after modernity, especially in a world of choice. And if I may, I'll just give, uh, I'll just give one example. Take the example of Hasidus, right, or, or the Kabbalistic system in general. Um, if you think about it, this idea of Zvekos, right, really permeates in so many ways kind of the entirety of my existence as a, as a Jew. I'm not saying this is the one that we need to adopt, but I'm saying there's a there's some movement that has kind of a central axis around which all else revolves. If I ask myself, non-Orthodox in the United States, what 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 what's the essence, right? What's what's the what lies at the heart and soul of our worldview? Right? Yeah. Ask your average rabbi, your average mechanic. I don't think we have one. So I, I think that the work that needs to be done, and I think that what we're finding is not so much chokification in the sense of, right, of um, like the uh, brisker approach to life, so much as we haven't really done the work to ask ourselves, what is this all about? And I think if we think about that question more deeply, I think we'll accomplish much more. And I think, I wouldn't blame it on the rub. I, I would say the rub is very important. And there are many times places where that is the right perspective, but I think that the, the real work needs to be done is that it's filling a vacuum. You know, what are we here for? What is it all about? That, that's the work that needs to be done. Yeah, I mean, I was, you know, sort of just reflecting for a second. I mean, it's certainly not in any way trying to place blame, right? In other words, I think that, you know, we're all sort of in this together and we're trying to sort of make sense of our religious lives. And I think as educators, I'm sure you experience this also, that you want to be able to sort of be able to dialogue with the student or with the community or with your family in a way that gives you a sense of confidence in the Torah. And I think that oftentimes what happens when it comes to the contemporary Orthodox community, and here I, I would focus actually on a shift oftentimes that happened from the medieval, at least to the modern uh, community in terms of, you know, let's say 20th, 21st century Orthodoxy. I think in the medieval period, you know, these questions are very much integrated into, let's say for argument's sake, the worldview of the Rambam. The Rambam writes the Lord Nebuchim with an eye towards giving sort of a more macro view as to sort of what is Judaism all about. And it's not surprising that in that context, like Tameh Mitzvot are a live category for him. Right, because for the Rambam, he'll say something like, "Well, all the mitzvot serve some ethical or societal functions." So or for there, he's living in the world where he's trying to articulate what is the grandiose vision of Judaism, and you sort of feel this. Although it's obviously different, let's say for example in the work of the Sefer Hachinuch, we're talking about the Shorish Hamitzvah. There's a sense that there's like you know something going on that we're trying to actualize. And when you get to the modern period, you hear, for example, rabbis like Rav Hirsch who again is sort of accomplishing a similar type of goal. Obviously there are differences, but it's the same type of language where there's a sense that Judaism is trying to facilitate something. And the language of Tama and Masoud is a natural outgrowth of that attempt to facilitate. You know, even if you go, let's say into the 20th century, just read Tradition Magazine. You know, you mentioned before Rabbi Lamb, I know that he's your wife's grandfather. And if you look, for example, just some of the writings of Rabbi Lamb or the writings of Rabbi Wurzberger or the writings of Rabbi Rackman, or just look at what people were talking about in the 1950s in Tradition Magazine, there was a sense of trying to figure out sort of like what is the more macro vision of Judaism and how does it play out in different contexts, especially when they're engaged in a very profound dialogue and disagreement with non-Orthodox movements. When you fast forward into the later 20th century and 21st century, certainly you see this in the evolution, for example, of Tradition Magazine, it may be changing now, but you do get a sense that sort of, you know, Judaism and Orthodoxy in particular has adopted heavily this model where sort of the brisker approach, which is so heavily focused on the what's and not on the why's, becomes hyper-dominant. You hear oftentimes, I'm not saying this critically, I'm saying just observationally, you hear oftentimes students of the Rav talking endlessly about how, you know, halacha is its own language, it's a 
self-contained system, hear the language of Seichel Shel Torah, and I understand where that's coming from, but I wonder sometimes when you talk the language of halachic categories and you're focused so much on the mechanics of uh, learning and sort of classic Talmudic distinctions, I wonder sometimes if that makes it more difficult to deal with the more macro questions. So just to give one other analog here, like in the world of analytical philosophy, right? So there are contemporary analytical philosophers who are very engaging and trying to make really extraordinary arguments sort of in their field. But I read an article in McCory Schoen where one of the analytical philosophers was trying to say the unique feature of analytical philosophy, and this resembles really brisker learning, is that it doesn't make macro claims, right? In other words, it's a localized argument and it doesn't get too tied down in sort of meta-narratives. So I'm curious just from your own experience being somebody who teaches Gemara, somebody who's taught Gemara, has been involved in high-level brisker learning, you know, how much do you think that internalizing the language of brisk, right? In a certain sense, when you start thinking about your life in these categories, how much do you feel sort of dissonance when it comes to articulating a more grandiose worldview as opposed to, let's say, those thinkers like the Rambam or of Hirsch, the Sefer Achinoch, who very much were sort of living this out in real terms? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a, I think it's a good question. I would just add to it also that even you know this, this notion of an emphasis on sacrifice, that too is a worldview, right? Because you ask me, like, what is the, right, what is the essence of, right, of Yadus? It's to be an Eved Hashem. Right, that that's not that's not lacking in a in a very cogent and, and compelling vision. And I would say that in other medieval communities, which you didn't mention, which were less focused on Tamiya mitzos in terms of discrete mitzos, it was precisely for this reason. So if you go from Sfard to medieval uh, to medieval Ashkenaz, and you ask post-Crusader communities, right, what was the essence, right, to kind of, you know, they had a certain theology of Kavod, of the Shechina, etc. But if you would ask me, and you don't have to only read Crusade Chronicles or, or other uh, Ashkenazic Rishonim, you know, or, or contemporary works to, to see this. But I think that that too is a theology. And what I would say is that, you know, nowadays, uh, I would say it, it's not, again, I, I, my, my perspective is that I think we absolutely are, are lacking in terms of this. And I think that kind of the, the shadow cast by Brisk, I think, is there. Uh, but I think that there's something else that, that's at play as well. I think I agree with you that we need to do more to, to formulate a vision for Torah and Mitzvah. So I would just say it's not just that Brisk is holding us back from giving a coherent explanation. I think it's more than that. I think it's not. It's that we haven't been asking ourselves kind of what is this all about. And I think that you know, as teachers, I think we usually fall into the the routines of, of kind of the previous generation, and uh, we kind of you know tend to fall into the trap of kind of doing what our, our own teachers did, right? And so they weren't necessarily thinking along those line, these lines. And I think we. Uh, we run the same the same danger, but David, I would add, add I would add one point, especially when it comes to the controversial issues. I think here there's an additional challenge that we face. You know, first and foremost, I agree with you 100. We need to think deeply about why and what is the vision of the Torah, etc., and to educate around that. But I think there are a lot of disincentives, even for someone who has a compelling, thoughtful, thorough perspective. Uh, a lot of disincentives uh, against sharing that. And I think that that's something that, like I wasn't around the 1950s, 60s, 70s, the early years of tradition, I certainly see that all the time. You go to your average shulrav in America, you could speak out powerfully and compellingly around the issues of the day, very openly. What would happen? He'd likely divide his community, right? He'd have, you know, half the community says, the rabbi is the champion of Torah and mitzvahs, et cetera. Even if it's done in a thoughtful and sensitive 
and uh, in a very cogent way, but there'll, there'll be a, there, there might well be a population that says, you know, that says, you know, I can't believe the rabbi said this, it's horrible. You create enemies. And, and I think that the, our community structure between the rabbinate, uh, education, chinuch, is that we are disincentivized to talk openly, especially in our incredibly polarizing environment where you know rabbis are afraid that they're going to lose their jobs. Not justified, but I am explaining a little bit about what's really happening in our community. So we don't have the same level of confidence. We don't want to offend right, members of our community and also vulnerable members of our community, members of the LGBTQ community, for example, for good reason. Most of all, we don't want to lose our jobs. So what we have is this trickle-down effect where anytime there's controversy, it becomes endangering to, uh, you know, to school retention and to bringing new students into my school, and therefore it becomes either existentially dangerous or, or just, you know, it's, it's another, pu you know, public relations problem that I have to deal with and that we have to contend with. And so it becomes easier and more convenient because of the way that our jobs and our uh, and really the, the professional um, Torah leadership structure in the United States, at least, is such that rabbis and, and educators are not incentivized to have hard conversations about real issues with their students. I think if we want to make progress on this, we have to not only uh, avoid chokrification uh, or overly much, but also to have real conversations that kind of shift the culture of what is uh, considered to be safe, not only for students, but even for teachers and rabbis to talk about uh, in their respective communities. Yeah, I think that's actually a really sharp insight. I mean, I know from myself as an educator, you know, one of the challenges is that obviously you learn certain sugyos, you learn certain gemaras, you learn certain areas of halacha, which, you know, sort of, you know, pretty easy to teach, pretty easy to engage. And that the second you get to uh, sugyos that are a little more contentious, so you always do run this risk, not only to sort of alienate, you know, people in the larger orbit, but even just, you know, one-on-one -on -one sort of dialoguing with students, you have to be sensitive to where the student's coming from, right? And obviously, you know, a student isn't always ready instinctively just to have a conversation, you know, specifically about the inner values of the sugi may not be ready in terms of zone maturation, in terms of zone life experience, et cetera. But, you know, one of the things I always think about is like when people ask me, for example, for, for books, right? People ask me for things to read. You know, and oftentimes I've, I've noticed that, you know, I struggle sometimes to give people, you know, books that will most frontally deal with questions that are on their minds. For example, a few summers ago, I was having a dialogue with a student who was struggling with different issues regarding postmodernism. So I think this is like a great example where like postmodernism isn't necessarily an ethical challenge, but it's a philosophical challenge. And I started doing my own research, just trying to figure out like, you know, what are the Jewish perspectives being offered on postmodernism? And I basically found, you know, Rav Shagar, obviously, is sort of the most well-known, at least in the larger sort of English world, I think, through his book that was published by Koren. But, you know, you have Rav Chaim Navon in Israel has written a book on postmodernism. There's a few other scholars here and there who have written things in academic forms, also in more public forms. But if you compare it to, for example, what you find in the Christian community, it's actually totally asymmetric. And I started to sort of do some research and say, well, what are Christians saying about postmodernism? And just like looking on Amazon and trying to see, like, what books are there? Uh, by Christian thinkers dealing with very similar struggles that we are dealing with when it comes to postmodernism. And it was pretty actually interesting for me to see how many books there were that were out there when it came to dialoguing about this from a Christian perspective. And one of the questions maybe, you know, I think about sometimes is, you know, maybe for a lot of reasons that are sort of beyond, you know, my expertise here, I wonder, so, I wonder sometimes if our community has done an extraordinary job, and it really has done an extraordinary job at creating Tamir Chachamim, creating amazing Magide Shir, creating people who can really communicate uh, their passion and love for Talmud Torah and for the world of mitzvot. But I, I do wonder sometimes whether or not, you know, we haven't been as effective 
at creating like real spokesmen uh, for Judaism in terms of really trying to figure out, as you mentioned before, not only what is the Ratzon Hashem, sort of how do we deal with contemporary challenges, not only in a defensive way, but in an offensive way. You know, that Judaism has something to say and is not always on the defensive. I could think, for example, three people, obviously you mentioned before the Rav, you mentioned before um, Rabbi Lamb, obviously Rabbi Sachs, who passed away recently. But, you know, among all the scholars who passed away over the past years, I've been thinking a little bit about, about the fact that, you know, there really is a halal, there really is a whole, right, that I think oftentimes what the community is looking for are books, articles, essays, leaders who are going to provide some hadracha, going to provide some guidance for our community navigating these questions. You know, uh, Professor Aaron Siegel, he wrote a revised essay trying to reconceptualize of Aaron's famous article, The Source of Faith, through like a perspective of an analytical philosopher. And like, it's a very engaging article, but I think we need sort of more of those types of articles, taking the challenges of the day, whether it's faith, whether it's halacha commitment, whatever it is, and trying to articulate them and avoiding at all costs the model of chokification. Because I think what happens there is people feel a confidence in the Torah, right? People feel that the Torah has something to say. It's not always on the defensive. And when we appeal to the chokification model and we sort of default back to we don't know, I wonder sometimes if that generates a sense, you know what, maybe the Torah is sort of always behind uh, the, the eight ball here and it always has to sort of catch up to what's going on in the contemporary trends. So just out of curiosity, maybe we could end with this. In terms of your own experience being somebody who's deeply uh, working in the Lamb Heritage Foundation and somebody who's really mining this extraordinary treasure chest of information, right? What do you sense from Rabbi Lamb? In other words, what, what was Rabbi Lamb's approach to tackling some of the more challenging issues of the day? Because he was somebody who was certainly not, you know, he did not want to shy away from the challenges. And I think as a spokesman for orthodoxy and being a Talmud Chacham, he really was unique. And I was curious as somebody who knows his work maybe better than anybody else, what is your sense of sort of his contribution, how he was sort of framed, not specifically this issue, but the larger question of whether or not Judaism has to have sort of a larger moral vision and how we should be articulating that in society? Yeah, great question. Before I jump in on, on, uh, on the Rabbi Lamb piece, I'll just share a, a quick anecdote. I remember when I was uh, fresh off the boat from yeshiva, I was, uh, I was buying some uh, post-yeshiva reading material, and I once walked into a Barnes & Noble, and uh, it's a librarian there says, was just very, very friendly, asked me about myself, said, oh, I'm, you know, I'm, I just studied in, in yeshiva, I explained what that was a little bit, and we're talking about it, and she says, finally, she says, uh, oh, so how can I help you, sir? And I said, well, I'm looking, uh, I'm looking for uh, a book called, uh, entitled The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. And this is after I explained, uh, you know, my Jewish background, my Jewish studies and, and all of this. Uh, and she says, oh, that's that's very interesting that that's in the Christianity section. C.S. Lewis, of course, being one of the great expositors of the 20th century to do a vision of of, uh, of Christianity. And uh, she says, you know, who, who recommended this to you? And, and I said, well, it, it was actually my rabbi. Uh, happens to be one, one of Rav Luchensin's favorite uh, books, modern Muslim books, Lahav Deal, uh, is, uh, is, uh, is the screw tape letters, as uh, many, many of his students uh, can attest. And I think that that kind of speaks to this question. Rav Luchensin shared it, not because he was specifically looking outside our faith tradition, he was open to something from outside our, our faith tradition that could be inspiring, that could be uplifting, uh, and have this kind of uh, psychological insight that, that, uh, that Lewis brought to bear in addition to uh, a general sense of religious commitment. But I think the reason he went there is because there 
there wasn't, he felt, a comparable work in, in that emerged from our community. So I think your, your point is spot on. I think that there's tremendous work to be done. Again, I, was, I would say not only on kind of the, the particular significances of specific mitzvot, uh, but on kind of this larger vision that I'm suggesting as well. It's, it's not enough. We need to do the work to explain the you know, specific mitzvot, but I think we need a larger vision. Perhaps we could have a separate conversation. What should that vision look like for modern orthodoxy? And I think that's the million dollar question. And I think it's not a question that we're answering. Um, but uh, setting that aside, what about Rabbi Lamb? Uh, you know, I think what's what's most remarkable, as you say about Rabbi Lamb, is that looking at his his drashos, his sermons in particular, over the course of some 25 years in the pulpit, and he, that was all, of course, before he became president uh, at Yeshiva University, and just many, many contemporary issues uh, in, in that from that uh, quote-unquote pulpit, if you will. Uh, I think it's exactly this sense of restoring a sense of confidence, of independence, of a kind of firm conviction that we should look to the Torah as an independent source of our values, our inspiration, and use it specifically in a constructive way, measured against and considering the contemporary issues of the day. So I think what you often have nowadays is you have kind of uh, either we have the discussions about, you know, whatever the contemporary issues are and kind of our politics live over there. And then we have like our discussions uh, very often about our learning, right? And our Torah and et cetera. And like, it's not always so clear where the two connect. And even where I'm talking about kind of the larger vision in the Hashkafa of Yahadas, but how does it tell me how to think uh, in a confident uh, way about whatever the issue of the day is? And he was doing this all the time, and he was fearless. I mean, I think he was fearless because, in part, because he had changed the incentives within his own community. He could speak with confidence, uh, you know, at, at about the issues of the day and draw those connections. I'll give one or two examples. You know, it was in, very interesting that you know, imagine year 1969 for just a moment, uh, right? So it seems like a less controversial issue at the time was was a massively important one, which is, of course, the moon landing. Right, to us, it's like kind of this quixotic, interesting thing. And, you know, Israel tried to, uh, you know, it was almost successful landing, if uh, not a person, a man on the moon, but, uh, right, uh, landing on the moon just a few short years ago. And we we're all incredibly excited to watch it and see uh, what would happen. And uh, this was, this is a major issue. And, and America was kind of like in lockstep around this, this notion that as part of the Cold War, this was a sign of achievement. This was our kind of our, our, uh, our high watermark in terms of what it meant to be an American is that we beat the Russians, that we planted the, the flag on the moon. And again, this was our great achievement. And I still recall you read these drashos and uh, Rabbi Lamb says, he says, really? He says, are you sure? Is it possible that pouring billions and billions of dollars is better spent not on finding some uh, far off uh, landing place on the moon, but in uh, helping to deal with the very real needs of people who are starving in the streets here on our own planet? You know, that sort of perspective. And that was nourished and informed by the Torah and from the Torah. And that's just one example. I did this with controversial issues throughout his entire career. So I, I think in many ways, while I, I would not say that there was kind of one single kind of larger vision that Rabbi Lem was putting forth in all of those drashos, is what the vision that he did put forth is to model for people who are living at a time when the greatest thing they could do was to become Jewish Americans. I did not have to choose between my Judaism, my Zionism, on the one hand, and my commitment to what it mean, meant to be an American, fully immersed, fully integrated, and fully accepted, ideally, into the United States culture at that time. And for him to say, 
actually there's something more. Actually, we can look at these issues and look at these questions through a, a Torah lens and a Torah hashkafa and do so with confidence. So I, I very much join you. I think you're absolutely right. Um, we, Rabbi Lamb, set a model and, and we would do well to uh, to adopt this path. The questions now obviously are not about moon landings anymore. And the question is not only, although it's also, you know, is kind of the high point of Judaism about being, you know, accepted as, as a sports star. I think, you know, that remains an issue nowadays. We, we see that all the time and, and remains uh, with us. But I think now the question really is, you know, do we have the self-confidence to uh, formulate and to articulate um, a Torah perspective, you know, about the burning issues of the day? Yeah, I think actually it's actually an amazing way to sort of end just the language of self-confidence. You know what I mean? I think that's sort of like the idea that the Orthodox community in all its different iterations, right, should feel a sense of confidence right, that the Torah actually does have something to say. And the ability to articulate it is not only, you know, a classic sort of cum of Talmud Torah in the sense that we are learning, but it actually is an incredible way to articulate the vision and sort of demonstrate to the larger world sort of what the Torah has to contribute. Um, I just want to again thank you uh, to you, Rotsvi. This was an amazing conversation. Thank you not only for writing a very important and powerful response to the Ben Shapiro piece, but really, you know, engaging today in a conversation of how can we take uh, some of the more constructive elements of Ben Shapiro's piece and think about and reflect on sort of has it challenge us as an Orthodox community to sort of take what he says, at least in certain dimensions, quite seriously, while at the same time sort of acknowledging that this is a much bigger conversation, an ambitious project. In many ways, this element of self-confidence may be, if not the, at least part of uh, the challenge and the opportunity for sort of orthodoxy uh, moving forward. So again, I want to thank you again for uh, joining us on the podcast. It was really great. And I recommend everybody who didn't have a chance to read Rabbi article, you can just email, Google Cisinetsky uh, Ben Shapiro or Cisinetsky Jewish Press, and you'll be able to get access to the article. It's an amazing piece. And uh, again, Rabbi thank you very much. Thank you, Rabbi It's a, a true joy and pleasure and a, a very humbling privilege to be, uh, to be on with you today.